welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. I'm Andrew Jew. This episode of Making a Difference has been produced by journalism students at Curtin University on Wajuk Noongar country. In this program, we look at how people are challenging norms and traditional thinking to improve their lives and those of others. First up, one of Australia's most serious challenges at the moment is housing. Houses to buy or rent are in short supply, and that means they're also expensive to buy or rent. Perth's title as the longest city in the world at almost 150 kilometres from north to south is making the problem even worse. Xander Sapsworth-Collis explains. The home they've always dreamed of the happiest investment they have ever made. At last, the Bryants have all the space they need. Good afternoon, everyone. We have a one-bedroom, half-bathroom hellhole for you today, ladies and gentlemen. A 71% increase in the median rent price in five years. What? A rental vacancy rate a quarter of what it should be. Twice. And with an urban footprint double that of Tokyo, the most populated city on the planet. Sold for a buck. Perth's housing crisis. To know what caused it would be to know its solution. I put the question why Perth's urban development has failed so badly to those within the industry, and their response was similar. Say to a planning minister, we need to think about beauty, he would write me off as being a whack job, or he would just think, oh, that's, you know, how cute. And it's like, well, are you serious? Is that where we are as a culture? That we can't ask for beauty anymore? That was Millie, founder of the grassroots urban development organisation Street Level Australia which seeks to change people's notions on what constitutes good urban development. Millie says good urban development means thinking about beauty and design to build what she calls the full place. You would say, what's Fremantle comprised of? What's the urban fabric? Like, what's a, what does a place need for people who, you know, to want to live there? And you actually build the full place, not just the housing component. Of it. Millie says Perth has what is known as the missing middle, a lack of medium or gentle density areas, like those that exist in Europe and Asia, that lead to better housing outcomes. If you have a consistent amount of six-storey buildings, you can fit as many if not more people as you can with these kind of high density buildings that we do. The problem with Perth is that because you have the city and then it immediately goes down to one story. What then has led to this situation? According to Kate Fitzgerald, an architect and urban developer from the firm Whispering Smith, poor urban development is because people have investment orientated views on property. I mean, they have high paying jobs and they want to retire early so they decided to put their money into a property investment from in their in they're in Brisbane, but they want to do one in Perth because it's cheap and there's a syndicate going here and they dump that money in and they end up extracting that money back out as profit margin. But the thing that gets built on the ground is actually really terrible. However, Kate says that it's tough to consider long-term design solutions when short-term fixes can do the trick. We're right in the middle of a housing crisis, right? So anything you do to restrict people from developing is bad. And although these houses are ugly, they have actually given someone a home to live in. Samantha Reese from the Apartment Advocacy Network says she believes apartments are uniquely placed to solve the housing crisis. One of the things that we actually have as a recommendation, a short-term recommendation, is that um, it is mandated to actually have affordable housing in every apartment block. Samantha echoed the sentiment of how important design is in solving the issue. 
So um, for us, affordability is not just about the price that you pay for the product, it's about the life cycle. So what your lifestyle is like once you move in there, and that includes design. But this design focus is starting to spread. James Durat designed the Woodside Bay Village Karatha FIFO workers' accommodation. He says good design principles, building a community, walkability, and reflecting the surrounding urban fabric were all considered for the village's design. What, what we've used is um, good architectural and urban design principles to make it feel like um, a small community. Kate thinks it's important to look to the future with design at innovative projects like Nightingale. Exactly what you're talking about with community, walkability, you might have friends in different buildings, there's coffee shops and, you know, it's right on the um, bike path into the city. And Brunswick, obviously, already a really cool area. And to the past, like old suburbs that get knocked down. You have a look at, you know, I've, I've done a lot of talks about medium density where I talk about Nolamara, like what it used to look like and what it's like now. Um, there's a lot of sort of talk about that infield development that, you know, when people say missing middle, Perth doesn't have a missing middle, it actually has a bad middle. However, Millie thinks Perth's desire to hold on to the past is holding back good urban development. And because we've, we've locked all of that up with people who are invested in their real estate and because of heritage protection, we're building suburbs. And then what you do, then what happens is you get that in the form of suppressed demand. Yeah. Okay, because there's nowhere to build in the in the city, so you either have to build on the edge, or you have to get it to the scarce bits of land where you actually can build something. Whilst Samantha says it's all a bit of a storm in a teacup. Just quickly, Xander, there is no missing middle, darling. There's just the development sector beating their own drum. Perhaps this disagreement and contention will prevent a solution from ever being found. One area of the Australian workforce that still needs to break with historic trends is in science, technology, engineering and maths. A recent STEM equity report found women are still underrepresented in these fields. Cindy Catahano spoke to women about working in the sector to find out what can be done to remove some of the barriers. As technology advances, the Australian government wants more people to study STEM subjects to meet future needs. Governments are adapting to the changing culture by encouraging more women to join the industry. But are government programs actually working or are they creating more challenges? Women say forcing organisations to meet quotas only adds to the already existing tensions in STEM fields. I felt a little bit like a statistic then, sort of like they've ticked the box, they've got a female, so they're kind of covered. Project engineer Mimi Seng works at one of the largest oil and gas companies in Australia. She says she's doubted her position in the company due to men making comments about her gender. Even though it's getting better, you still have people throwing around those comments in the industry. You still have people saying like, oh, she just got the job because she's a girl. Or even if they do get the job, they still say like, oh, she's not as qualified. Someone else would have been better, like a dude would have been better. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, women are more likely than men to take parental leave. Pregnancy is a significant chapter for some women and often requires them to take some time off from their careers. Big decisions like stay-at-home mum keep working the way up. Danielle Russell is a PhD candidate studying population health at UWA. You get used to that lifestyle, you realise the child really does need you. They want to get back into their job but it's really hard raising a child 
and trying to go back to work. Russell says many of her colleagues who go on maternity leave find it difficult to come back to work. They start off, they like, yep, I'm just going to go on maternity leave for a year and I'll be back. Two years later, yeah, I'm just going to take another six months off and then I'll be back. Another six months later, oh, I'm pregnant again. Sang says her male colleagues struggle to take paternity leave for the full term. I've spoken to a few and they feel like they can't. The social um, stigma of like, oh, but you're not the primary caregiver. According to the STEM Equity Monitor, more students are choosing to study STEM, but the number of students successfully completing these studies has not seen much progress. I'm finding that they're switching degrees. Rubina Jakowicz, a mathematics student at UWA, has noticed a decrease in the number of women in her classes over the years. At first year, there would probably be like 20. Now I'm in my third year and there's like, yeah, there's like five of us. Computer science student at Curtin University, Therese Stone, has noticed the same pattern in her classes. There is only probably like a handful. So I don't know if there's like, like an anxiety around coming to class because there is so many of the opposite gender, but sometimes I feel it. Women in STEM say using a value system with the help of AI could improve the situation for everyone in the industry. Go on like a value system so you don't get to see age, name, sex. Using AI to essentially pick the best person for the job without knowing the gender. Although this system might help reduce some tension, Russell says changing attitudes will be the difficult task. They got through the barrier because we did that system. Now. Now what? Fertility rates are declining across Australia as more couples choose not to have children. In response, child-free communities are springing up for people who want alternatives to the conventions that society serves up, based on the traditional family. A reporter, Premila Ratnam, investigates. Uh, there was this one line that I wrote where I said, I, I can't remember it exactly, but it's basically like, I didn't think I was so unique as to have, be the only one to have this thought, that I was bored and I wanted something to put my love into. Like, there must be other people like that who feel the same way. That's Madeline Georgetta. Madeline is a wellness and lifestyle social media influencer based in Perth. Hey, guys. So this is a little bit of a controversial topic. Last year, she published an article on Substack about her decision not to have kids because she thought other people might be able to relate. Since deciding not to have children, Madeline has found herself cherishing connections with other child-free people. I, I really, I really appreciate it when I hang out with my friends who who don't have children. We have just totally different conversations. Madeline's desire to connect with other child-free people is not unique. In Australia, more and more people are living without children. The Australian Bureau of Statistics predicts the number of couple families without children will exceed the number of couple families with children sometime between 2023 and 2029. And as more people opt not to have kids, child-free communities have started to emerge. In Perth, social groups like Women Without Kids on meetup.com and Perth Australia Child Free on Facebook are flourishing. So hashtags like child free by choice and not having kids have gotten popular on the TikTok. Do you have a personality other than being child-free? Uh, no, not on TikTok anyway. Danny Duncan is a social media influencer and child-free advocate based in New Zealand who has a significant Australian following. She fosters a child-free community through her social media pages. 
there's a massive child-free community out there that desperately want to see this side of life shared. And I would say every day, every second day, I will get a DM from somebody saying, thank you so much for talking about this. I've never seen this talked about before. It makes me feel not so alone, not so weird. Danny says people in their 30s and 40s who are child-free may not have many opportunities to socialize with other child-free people. You've probably very likely been surrounded by a lot of people that are getting pregnant, announcing pregnancies, having babies, having baby showers and first birthday parties, and there's not a lot of opportunity to be around people that aren't in that space of life. And I think with anyone in life, you want to have people that you relate to, that understand you, that you can share similar life experiences with. When I'm older, I want to be a doctor, a dentist, a scientist. Today, Aussie girls can grow up to be anything they want to be, but that hasn't always been the case. She Defined is an online publication for women based in Australia and has a dedicated child-free section. Founding editor Sharon Green says she noticed a lot of online content for women was centred around motherhood. So I thought, what if I launched a publication for women that excluded this parenting content and rather focused on all the other great things that women can do and be? Sharon says the most common response she defined gets from readers who are child-free is that they finally feel seen. I think for them it's a lot about connection and finding that connection or finding a place where they feel like they belong, you know, because that's all we really want at the end of the day is to find some way to belong. Both Sharon and Danny think it's important to grow child-free communities to support people without children in pronatalist societies. Now, a year ago, Mr Speaker, Australians voted, and they voted for a government that puts Australian families first. Edith Cowan University senior lecturer and family issues expert Dr Bronwyn Harmon says Australia is a pronatalist country. It's a very pronatal country in things when you look at things like government policy. In government policy, there's often things in the budget for families. There's family tax breaks, there's childcare rebates. There's not often things in the, in the budget or government policy for people who do not have children. She also says Perth is a pronatalist city. Definitely there's a pronatal attitude in Perth. It's not until you start to consciously think about it that you notice that it's happening. It's very subtle. It's it's a very clever underlying picture that is is put basically to, to the people. And it is a very subtle way of influencing how people think. Dr Harmon says people without children, particularly women, can be devalued in a pronatalist society. This is how to let go of negativity. Perth-based influencer Madeline says being child-free can sometimes make her feel out of place in a city that promotes conventional norms. But she says she wants to keep exploring child-free connections in Perth and hopes the child-free community continues to grow. I know my friends used to be like, oh, come on, have a kid with me so we can do it together. Maybe there's a part of me that wants other people to you know, do it together with me. So then I'm, I feel like I'm less alone and we're living, we're kind of living similar lives. Maybe there's a part of it that, that does, that does truly want people to, um, you know, to, to be like me in, in that, in that way. So yeah, we have that, those commonalities. This is Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production by journalism students at Curtin University. First-generation Australians often talk about the challenges of moulding their identity and family heritage to fit in. I just wanted to be like an, an Aussie kid because 
it was hard like to be different and I think when you're different there's a um, leaning to try and fit into a group. And as I spoke to first generation Australians, those who also identify as gay have found fitting in can be even more complex. When we got there, we were just like followed around and we were in a school where there was no Asian kids, it was all Australian and they just kept on staring at us and following us and we just got really scared because we just kind of felt like almost like, uh, you know, a zoo animal and people were like just staring and looking and just acting really weird to us because we didn't know what was happening. So that was, that was frightening for us, you know, as a six or seven year old kid, it's quite scary. That's Fu Nguyen, a gay Sydney man who fled the Vietnam War in 55 for a chance at a new beginning. But it wasn't always smooth sailing for Fu. He lost a piece of himself in the pursuit to fit in. As a child growing up, not, not being accepted, you were trying so hard to accept being a Western person and finally kind of like having Western friends. Um, anything else that was Asian, um, I was not racist, but I just didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't want to learn Vietnamese. I didn't want to um, do a lot of the, you know, the Vietnamese cultural things like, you know, the New Year, going to Vietnamese churches and all that stuff, which my mum and dad forced us to go. But there was a lot of stigmas for me, um, and I just felt that every time I did something Vietnamese, I wasn't... Um, adapting to the culture has been an Australian kid. It's like I have one face when I'm out with my friends or out in the real world or working. And then when I'm at home, it's like a totally different thing. It's a different personality in the sense that I'm not really myself because of the traditions. When I first realized I was gay, I reckon it would have been about maybe 12 or 13. Um, back then, obviously, there was no internet. Um, homosexuality was very taboo. It was, was almost not even talked about. Um, I didn't even know what it was. I I just thought it was like, um, oh, it's just like a phase. Um, you know, next time when I wake up, I'm going to feel very different. In a world with so many people, Fu Nguyen felt incredibly alone. Fu felt like an outsider looking in on a world that didn't understand him. At school, his desk was vandalised with derogatory slander and his differences made him a victim of verbal abuse and taunting. But in recent years, with factors like increased education, representation and changing attitudes, there has been greater acceptance of diversity. Luckily, I didn't have it super difficult uh, in school growing up with being gay or Asian um, in terms of bullying and stuff because I do know that many people who are very similar to myself, experienced experience that, which is very unfortunate. I think Australia has really, in um, the culture, really inspired me to, to be myself and unapologetically myself. That's Pep Stevens, a 22-year-old first-generation Australian who moved from Thailand. Before Pep arrived onto Australian soil, he had many hopes and dreams, and here in Australia, he has the opportunity to pursue them. Before I came here, I didn't speak any English. I So I had to start from zero um, to be where I am today. So I was really proud of that. For Pep, having a strong support network at school, where his peers were also international students, gave him a sense of belonging. 
The latest data from the Bureau of Statistics revealed that Australia welcomed nearly 171,000 people from overseas between 2021 and 2022. I think the way you um, um, portray yourself with your friend, you kind of have to alter it a little bit with your family, especially when your family is, you know, Asian as well. (laughs) You know, respect and that is very important. When I'm out with my friends, I go all out. (laughs) Being myself and being, you know, very girly, very gay, all that. And then coming home, I just have to like shut that off until, until I finally came out. But having spent many years in Australia, Pep is now thriving. He has plenty of support from his family and is even spreading his wings as a flight attendant, all while completing uni. We turn our attention to the changing attitudes to the use of cannabis in Australia. In recent years, marijuana for medicinal purposes has been legalised, while its use in the ACT and parts of the Northern Territory has been decriminalised. As Georgie Sides reports, there's a push to make a more liberal stance on cannabis in Western Australia as well. Western Australia has had a long and divisive history with cannabis. Cannabis was widely used in Australia throughout the 19th century, including in WA. However, Australia began a journey of cannabis prohibition in the early 20th century, when the 1925 Geneva Convention revised international convention relating to dangerous drugs to include cannabis. Pressure from the Commonwealth and the US led to Australia placing a federal ban on importing and exporting of the drug but allowed states and territories to ultimately decide their individual legislation. Cannabis remained legal for personal cultivation and use in WA up until 1950, and six years later the Commonwealth placed a total ban on the plant across all of Australia. In the 1960s and 70s, and only after its ban, cannabis became Australia's most widely used drug. In 1981, Western Australia introduced the Misuse of Drugs Act to further legislate control of cannabis. Over the next two decades in WA, cannabis legislation remained virtually unchanged by state government until former Labor Premier Jeff Gallup decriminalised use, possession and cultivation of small amounts of the drug. Senior lecturer of addiction at Edith Cowan University, Dr Stephen Bright, believes this change was a move forward for WA. There was no evidence that there was increased use or any increased harms from cannabis, but it, but it stopped people who had been charged with cannabis from going through the, the court system. They were basically had the option, you could pay a fine or you could go get some counselling and you wouldn't have to pay a fine. Yet this was short-lived. In 2011, Liberal Premier at the time, Colin Barnett, reinstated criminal laws. Following the federal government's medicinal cannabis legislation in 2016, West Australians can currently legally access cannabis for medicinal use only. Although recreational use of marijuana is still a criminal offence, legalised cannabis WA party leader Dr Brian Walker thinks Western Australians should be aiming for more than decriminalisation. It's probably the, the simplest step forward. Um, it doesn't require us to make any regulations. It simply says, if you're caught with cannabis, we're not going to put you into prison or something similar. 
so it's a, it's a good first step, but it doesn't allow us really to make the most use of, of cannabis. But what obstacles are there to WA legalising cannabis? Dr Stephen Bright believes Aussie culture has a part to play. I do think, I do think Australia as a society is a very conservative nation. I think that we're phobic of things that, that produce a psychoactive effect, unless they're caffeine, alcohol or tobacco. Clearly, there are harms associated with cannabis. Every drug has harms associated with it. But when you compare it with other drugs like alcohol, it is, it's far less harmful than that drug. You're reducing that harm because you're taking people out of the criminal justice system and you're potentially reducing harm also among that group who you know, may switch. They may, maybe they're already using cannabis every now and then. Maybe they start using cannabis more regularly, but they cut alcohol out. So the net harm still is, re- is a reduction in harm overall. But Dr. Brian Walker thinks that the public's concerns are not WA's greatest opponent. Every time I speak about cannabis, I'm educating my political friends. However, they are constrained by the fact that their leader currently uh, is deeply against cannabis. For whatever purposes, I've got no idea. And therefore, while they might agree with me, they don't dare say so because they would then uh, be uh, persecuted by their own uh, party. Because McGowan is deeply opposed to it, and as long as he has the whip hand, his uh, party won't, won't follow, although it is still a Labour Party policy. But Dr. Brian Walker believes he has a promising strategy of swaying WA government's current stance. On the one hand, you've got to realise that politicians don't really care about truth. They care about the perception of truth. What they're concerned about is money and power. I think the best way actually of managing it uh, is going to be money. Uh, If the the companies realise how much money they can actually earn by uh, hemp and cannabis, then that will give impetus to growth and the government will have to listen to the business and then they'll come to sensible decisions. On my part, I'm trying to get more facts into government. The the Select Committee report just now, uh, it has got very good facts written by majority Labour Party members. As of the 30th of May, Labour Premier Mark McGowan has stepped down from his role and Roger Cook will step up as WA's new leader. We need to educate the the, the public about the true facts of cannabis, uh, and that is not a dangerous drug. It can be misused, but it is not dangerous. And uh, once people grasp this, and that will roll on into government. That's what I'm hoping. And that story finishes our program. For more stories from the best student journalism in Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. Making a Difference is produced every month by a different university. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. I'm Andrew Jew. Thanks for listening. Listener.